With 25% off all new and up to 70% off previously leased furnishings, do you really need a better reason to party? We don't think so. Come visit our new Court Furniture Clearance Center with more than 9,000 square feet of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home and office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. Free food, prizes, and fun all weekend long at our Chandelier Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Well, hi, and thanks for joining me for this episode of Week in Review. I'm your host, Peter Lamont, and this is utlradio.com, your business success and legal information station. Well, we've got a lot of uh, news to get to today, but before we do, obviously, um, no program really could begin without mentioning the terrorism in uh, Paris this weekend and the tragedy there. Um, you know, they're referring to it as... Paris's or France's 9-11, and so I think that uh, all of us here, our, our sympathy is extended to family and friends and, and those people in Paris who have lost loved ones, and to the city of Paris as a whole. Um, having been through 9-11 in this country, uh, the sense of insecurity and fear it's overwhelming, and it takes a long time to recover from that. I worked down on Wall Street during the 9-11 attacks, and it uh, it took a long time for me to sort of be okay with it all. And so I understand what the people in Paris and the people in France are going through, and I can't... Um, I can't do anything to help them except pray for them, and that's what I'm going to be doing. Uh, obviously, a terrible tragedy over the weekend with the um, you know suicide bombings and the the execution of so many innocent people who were just trying to have a little fun. They were at a concert, and uh, it's unspeakable what was done to them, and and it really is so frightening as a worldwide society to have an enemy like this, this sort of hit-and-run uh, enemy who has no rules of engagement, who will just do whatever they can do to kill the maximum amount of people. And it's really, really frightening that we're, we're raising children in today's society. You know, my kids said to me over the weekend, is this World War III? You know, and, and all you can do is say, you know, no, don't worry about it. But I think as adults, when we see this tragedy and the, the senseless, senseless killing, the viciousness, it, it is disconcerting to say the least and frightening. So um, our hopes and, and prayers and thoughts go out to the people of Paris and uh, everyone who, who has suffered from these attacks. So uh, I wanted to mention that at the top of the show because I think that that really is one of the most important things that um, that we need to address today because it is an absolute terrible tragedy. But let's get into uh, some of the stories that we're going to be talking about today. DraftKings, the online um, fantasy sports site, which New York State is calling an illegal gambling site. We're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about a ridiculous lawsuit filed by PETA 
the uh, animal protection people. We're going to be talking a little bit about Cheerios and J.C. Penny um, and some other litigation that's pretty interesting. We're going to get to that in a second. But before we do, I just want to talk for a second about IT security and IT solutions. If you are a business owner, you know how confusing and complex IT can be. And especially, you know, in light of these these security breaches that we've had at major retailers over the last two to five years, I mean, you know how important security is. If you are in a business where, you know, for example, you're a lawyer and you need to protect your data, you know, you can't have really sensitive client materials opened up for everyone to see. You need to have a an affordable, a professional and a sort of 24-7 partner to help you with your IT needs. And that's not always easy to find, but there is a great company that I want to mention to you. It's Cognoscape LLC, and they can be your partner and help you with your IT solutions. Take a listen to this. So how do you get from where you are now to where you want to be in the future? Reaching your business goals requires a technology transformation roadmap to help you build and design for what the future of your business looks like. You see, we're going to pave the road for you, fixing your current infrastructure problems and making sure your existing technology is working. When your existing infrastructure is working, our expert technicians will consult with you to make recommendations for technology solutions that will start moving you toward your goals. We'll implement the solutions and secure the path with monitoring services and network security to keep hackers and viruses out of your way. As you arrive at your business destination, your technology solutions were implemented, goals achieved. The initial journey may be over, but it doesn't end there. We're going to help you plan for the future, maintain everything in good working order, and maintain security. Cognoscape takes your business from point A to point B. Contact us today to get your technology transformation roadmap and plan for your future. So if you're interested in learning more about Cognoscape and how they can help your business, you can either check them out online at Cognoscape.com or give them a call at 214-377-4884. And don't forget, on their site, they have two ebooks and a ton of white papers that's all free information for you, so check that out. That is available at Cognoscape.com. All right, let's jump into the first story that we're going to deal with today, which is DraftKings. And, um, you know, DraftKings is the, I guess, the partner for the NHL, maybe even the NFL, the fantasy team or fantasy sports partner. Now, fantasy sports have, have kind of evolved over the years. It used to just be something that people did for fun, then with online and internet, um, gaming, it, it again, we were talking about 10 years ago, it was just something that you kind of had fun with, you followed your teams, but now it's evolved into a multi-million dollar business because DraftKings is a site where not only can you you pick your own fantasy leagues and teams and players, but you can win real money, and some of it is you know $5 or $10, but other prizes can be a million dollars. So the state of New York is saying that this constitutes illegal gambling and they've taken steps to shut them down. 
Well, like other immensely popular but controversial tech startups in recent years, DraftKings and FanDuel, which is another site similar to DraftKings, have reached a critical juncture where, having already won over millions of users, they must now do the same with regulators. The open question is which way the pendulum swings will fantasy sports companies emerge mostly victorious as sharing economy stars Uber and Airbnb have so far? Or will they end up like Aereo, which was dealt a fatal blow by the U.S. Supreme Court when it ruled that its antenna-based live TV streaming service was illegal? Well, the operations of Boston-based DraftKing and New York-based FanDuel rely on an exemption in a 2006 federal law that banned online poker but allowed fantasy, fantasy sports, which were categorized as games of skill and not chance, and therefore didn't fall under the purview of gambling laws. DraftKings and FanDuel are currently operating in more than 40 states. Their websites allow users to pay a fee to play short-term fantasy contests against millions of opponents and potentially win large sums of money. Users draft a lineup of players and earn points based on how well those players perform. So the critics are questioning the legality of the industry, and they're saying that the games are basically the same as sports gambling, which is illegal in most states. If legislators or the courts settle that debate and the final call goes against DraftKings and FanDuel, it could mean a knockout punch for their businesses. But even if the companies prevail on that question, they won't be out of the woods according to a Cornell Law School professor overseeing a new program uh, that pairs attorneys and recent law grads with entrepreneurial students who might need help navigating legal questions. If the leaders of DraftKings and FanDuel are smart, uh, they're studying the chessboard and planning two or three moves ahead. The point is, according to the professor, that they've got to be careful even if they win Regulators and others might still try to change the rules in a way that makes it impossible for them to continue with their business model. Relying on the exemption of the 2006 federal law may work for some period of time at the federal level, according to the professor, but it overlooks the fact that you have to consider state law issues. And it does seem that that's where the debate is now headed. On Tuesday of last week, the New York Attorney General sent a cease and desist order to the companies claiming their sites are illegal gambling operations under state law. The companies disagree with that view, of course, and are weighing their legal options during the five-day window they have to respond to the letter. But both have made it clear they intend to fight and keep operating in New York. The New York Attorney General's action followed last month's decision by the Nevada Gambling Committee that forced daily fantasy sports websites to shut down there until they get a gambling license. DraftKings and FanDuel instead opted to cease operations in Nevada, at least temporarily. This decision stymies innovation and ignores the fact that fantasy sports is a skill-based entertainment product loved and played by millions of sports fans, FanDuel said in a prepared statement after the Nevada agency's ruling. DraftKings and FanDuel have been impossible to ignore this fall, even for those who don't give uh, uh, you know, any credence to sports, the two competitors have spent heavily to run advertisements, giving new meaning to uh, ad nauseum, by the way, since the start of the NFL season in September, thanks to war chests of more than $350 million in venture capital each. each. So 
you know, here we have this uh, brewing, brewing debate, and um, we're going to follow it up and see where it goes. Like I said at the beginning of the story, I mean, these are multi-million dollar companies. This is a lot of money that these startups have generated. And if you've played the sites, if you've played on either DraftKings or FanDuel, um, you know, I don't know if it's a game of chance or if it's if it's a game of skill. I I've tried it actually, and I follow certain sports teams. I'm not going to say that I am the uh, you know the the be all and end all of sports. I'm not, but I found it extremely difficult to really win any money. I mean, even like a few dollars. And I, I'm wondering whether. It is more of a gambling site than uh, a, a fantasy sports site, um, and whether or not there's skill or luck or both involved, you know, you are in a sense you're betting on players to perform so that your fantasy team will accumulate enough points and then win you money. You're betting. I mean, that's what it is. You're gambling. You're taking a gamble. On a particular player, so I I understand actually where the New York Attorney General's office is coming from because it is very unclear to me uh, whether or not it it is gambling. And what's also interesting is the fact that neither FanDuel nor DraftKings went forward to obtain the Nevada license when that dispute happened. I wonder what the reasoning is. I'm sure there's something online available. That explains the rationale behind that. But it is it is interesting to note that they would forego Nevada where you would imagine you're going to get a ton of business. Now, I know it's not a brick and mortar, so you're not going to have people flocking to Las Vegas or to Nevada to play. But it just seems as though you would be missing out on even more revenue from a large state like Nevada. So it's interesting why they didn't do that. And we'll see what happens with these sites. I would imagine that there's going to be a lot going on on this issue this week, and we will follow up and let you know how that pans out. Now, shifting gears for a second, going over to another tech company, this one, Apple. Well, Apple has uh, just won a lawsuit concerning searching employees at their facility before they go home. Now, this is interesting. This is actually um, a case that was filed in the Northern District of California, and uh, this is a wage and hour class action. Both sides had moved for summary judgment, and the judge ultimately granted the summary judgment motion on behalf of Apple. Now, the plaintiffs in this case, they represent a certified class that had been defined to include current or former hourly paid and non-exempt employees of Apple who worked at one or more of Apple's retail stores from July 25th, 2009 to the present. And the plaintiff was seeking compensation for, get this, time spent undergoing exit searches pursuant to Apple's bag search and technology card search policies and for time spent waiting for the searches to occur. These searches occurred when employees left the premises with a bag, purse, backpack, or briefcase, 
or with an Apple product such as an iPhone. Apple searched them to see if Apple goods were being pilfered. The issue that was before the court was whether the time spent waiting for the exit searches deserved compensation under California law. So if you look into this lawsuit, you'll see that Apple actually has a very comprehensive policy in place that does its best to prevent employees from stealing either uh, you know, technology or product from, uh, from Apple. And if you come in with a, a bag or a, a backpack, they search you. They go so far as to search serial numbers on your Apple products to make sure that you are not taking anything that belongs to Apple. Now, the employees are arguing that if it takes 10, 15 minutes, and I'm not saying that it does, but if it takes time for them to exit the store, shouldn't they be compensated for the time that that search takes? And uh, the court has gone through a, a relatively exhaustive analysis here. Um, and it comes down to a lot of technical issues. Uh, Apple, who had raised a very um, complex evidentiary objections pertaining to the re- relevance and foundation of, of certain documents that the plaintiff had introduced, um, really they disputed the evidence and that didn't end up helping them at all. But ultimately, um, the plaintiff's motion for summary judgment was denied. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean anything, okay, um, for the for the for Apple because it's just another lawsuit that they have uh, they've won. Um, you know, Apple's motion for summary judgment being granted is just another, I think, feather in their cap. What I'm trying to say here is that Apple has suffered through so many lawsuits over the past years, it doesn't phase them anymore. They've you know, defended this claim and won on summary judgment. And uh, again, to them, it's all in, uh, in a day's work. Let's talk for a second about the summary judgment issue itself. So what is summary judgment and why you know, would a motion for summary judgment be filed in general? What's the application of it? Well, a motion for summary judgment is really the equivalent of having a trial on paper. So it is a formal motion procedure that can occur prior to a trial. And what happens, generally speaking, is that one party will file a motion for summary judgment. Sometimes the other party, your your adversary, will join in and also file one. Sometimes they just file opposition. But what you're asking the court to do is to decide that there are no issues of fact that need to be submitted to a jury. And if there are no questions of fact that need to be submitted, then summary judgment must be granted and the case is dismissed because only a jury can answer to questions of fact. They're the only ones that can decide questions of fact. A judge can't decide issues concerning factual questions. He can decide questions of law, he or she. So when there's no question of fact to submit to a jury, Summary judgment is appropriate, and that's what happened here. So 
the judge ruled in this case that there are no questions of fact to submit to a jury, that based upon the evidence and the testimony, that the judge believed that when you apply the law of the state of California, that the few minutes that they, they had to wait for their property to be searched was not overtime, and therefore they shouldn't be paid that extra money. Um, but that was the purpose of summary judgment because it avoids a trial. Now, you're not always successful at the summary judgment stage because you know it is easier, I think, to try to create a question of fact that needs to be submitted to a jury than it is to necessarily win a summary judgment motion. Uh, that doesn't mean that all of these cases that lose at summary judgment go to trial, most of them. You know, somewhere in the area of 98% of them settle. Very few cases actually go to trial. But again, you know, for the plaintiffs here, probably a massive blow to Apple. What does it mean? Nothing. It's just another feather in their cap. But I have to say that Apple really, really handles their litigation well. Like them or hate them, I happen to like Apple. Uh, I think their products are great. I I love what they do. Um, But they're no joke when you sue them. And I think that uh, if you're not fully prepared and don't have a good case, I think that this is what happens to you. I think that Apple will just run you over. So uh, that being said, you know, the attorneys who worked on this for the plaintiff's end, they received no compensation. And the um, employees obviously received no compensation. Now you have to wonder, do those employees who file the lawsuit, do they continue to work for Apple And this brings into play a legal question that we answered last week concerning SEPA, which is the Conscientious Employee Protection Act. And so in the event that one of these employees who was a member of the class were to continue to work for Apple, Apple could not sue them because they filed this lawsuit, because that would most likely rise to a SEPA violation. Could they fire them for something else? Sure. But uh, I just thought that was an interesting tie-in since we talked about that question last week. All right, moving into uh, brick-and-mortar retailers and brick-and-mortar issues, JCPenney to refund customers $50 million in a false advertising settlement. JCPenney is putting a class-action lawsuit uh, accusing the retailer of violating consumer protection laws by using deceptive discount practices behind it. The company announced on Wednesday that it agreed to pay $50 million to settle the complaint, which was first filed in 2012, according to the New York Times. Under the proposed settlement, shoppers will have the option of selecting a cash payment or store credit. The total payment will be dependent upon the amount of money the class members spent on private label or exclusive items from the retailer that were purported to be 30% off or more between November 5th, 2010 and January 31st, 2013, at its California stores. The settlement stems from a 2012 lawsuit filed by a California woman who says she bought three blouses for $17 each at a JCPenney store. The price of the blouses allegedly represented a 40% discount from the original price of $30. However, the woman later learned the shirts hadn't sold for more than $17.99 at any time in the previous three months. The Federal Trade Commission stipulates that retailers must sell items at original prices for a reasonable length of time before adding discounts if they wish to provide the original prices to consumers who compare costs. 
JCPenney continues to do uh, to deny the allegations that it ran a massive year-long pervasive campaign, as alleged in the complaint, to trick shoppers into believing that they were getting big discounts on brands carried exclusively at the retailer. The company said it was entering into the settlement to, open quote, eliminate the uncertainties, burden, and expense of further protracted litigation, close quote. That, by the way, is a very common term that's included in just about every settlement agreement that I've ever seen. It is essentially a denial of liability. And uh, it, it doesn't really, really mean anything. You're never going to admit liability when you're settling a case. So, you know, while the media reports some of the language that's found in the complaint uh, for, I don't know, almost a re- reactionary sort of um, statement, you know, oh, they said this, they, you know, said that, that they deny basic legal terms. That's all these are. It's just basic legal provisions. And to an attorney, it doesn't really mean all that much. But to you as the listener, you might be reading something and say, wow, you know, um, they they are so adamant and upset and, you know, to eliminate the uncertainties, burden and an expense of further protracted litigation. What does that mean? Does that mean that they didn't do it? They did do it? Well, it's a settlement, so it doesn't really matter if they actually knew. They're settling the case. And with this denial of liability clause, they're wiping out, you know, any further discussion. That's all it is. But it, so it's not that, that, you know, exciting when you're actually in the law. You know that it's just sort of commonplace in these settlement agreements. Uh, they continue to say that while they are confident of their position, resolving this litigation removes any uncertainty and risk, which JCPenney believes is in the best interest of their shareholders. And that's what the uh, CEO said in a statement last week. As part of the settlement, JCPenney has also agreed to improve its pricing and advertising policies. Among the improvements, the retailer must undergo periodic monitoring and training programs designed to ensure compliance with California's advertising laws. So, um, you know, as far as JCPenney goes, I think that this is confined to California. You're never going to know, is this something that they, uh, they did? Is it something that they didn't do? I would suggest that when somebody pays out $50 million to consumers, chances are they probably had some idea um, you know, about what was going on, and they probably knew what they were doing. Uh, whether or not it was intentional or accidental, that obviously is another issue. But if you were shopping at JCPenney's in California, you could be getting a merchandise credit. So <laughs> pay attention and stay on the lookout for that. So if you get mail in California from JCPenney, don't throw it away. You could get $5 off. Now, I'm just being facetious, but with class action settlements, typically the only people that make money are the lawyers. All right. A judge has dismissed a lawsuit against Taylor Swift who uh, using Taylor Swift lyrics. It's kind of funny. Uh, I'll leave you breathless or with a nasty scar. Last month, an unknown R&B singer named Jesse Brom sued Taylor Swift for $42 million over the lyrics to her hit song, Shake It Off. Last week, a U.S. district judge in California dismissed the suit using, appropriately enough, lots of Taylor Swift lyrics. Brom had claimed that the phrases haters going to hate and players going to play were plagiarized from his 2013 song, Haters Gonna Hate, 
but the judge found the phrase haters gonna hate was already uh, a popular term and item that was readily available in Google searches, had been searched many times before, even before Brahms' song debuted, according to the evidence cited in the ruling. That's to say nothing of the seminal 2000 track, Players Gonna Play, by 3LW, which the judge also cites. The judge embraces the ridiculousness of the suit fully in the conclusion of her ruling as she writes, this is great, at present the court is not saying that Brahm can never, ever, ever get his case back in court, but for now we have got problems and the court is not sure Brahm can solve them. As currently drafted, the complaint has a blank space, one that requires Brahm to do more than write his name. And upon consideration of the court's explanation in part two, Brahm may discover that mere pleading band-aids will not fix the bullet holes in his case. At least for the moment, defendants have shaken off this lawsuit. Very, very funny uh, coming out of a judge. I think this is actually one of the things that you know I kind of look for in the practice of law to bring a smile to your face because law is not a funny business at all. And it's uh, it's entertaining, entertaining to say the least, to uh, to see a judge with a sense of humor. So that was that was great. All right now, something a little bit more serious. Birth control packaging errors lead to a lawsuit, and this is being reported by CNN. <clears throat> more than 100 women who thought they were protected from pregnancy by the birth control pills have filed the lawsuit against a manufacturer because the pills were packaged incorrectly. Court documents suggest that women took the pills as directed, but they failed to prevent pregnancy because of a packaging error. The package was rotated 180 degrees, reversing the orientation of the pills, meaning that the women took placebo pills when they should have been taking the active pills. 94 women who took the pills gave birth after unexpected pregnancies, and 17 others did not carry their pregnancies to term, according to an attorney for the women. Two others who are part of the lawsuit were not pregnant, the attorney said. According to the lawsuit filed in the Court of Common Pleas of Philadelphia on November 5th, more than 100 women from 28 states who took the pills are seeking millions in damages to compensate for their pain, suffering, lost wages, and child-rearing expenses. In Oregon, state law specifies that child-rearing expenses include the costs of a child's college. Crazy, right? The pills were manufactured uh, by Qualitest Pharmaceuticals, a subsidiary of Endo Pharmaceuticals, and the company voluntarily recalled the lots of pills in 2011, according to the FDA. Court documents filed in April suggest that the company distributed a quote-unquote dangerous and defective product, but that the recall posted on the FDA website said the packaging issue didn't pose any immediate health risks. I guess pregnancy to some people is a health risk. A spokesperson for Endo Pharmaceuticals said the company is aware of the complaint, but does not comment on pending or ongoing litigation. Surprise, surprise. In a statement, she noted that there is uh, no new or recent product recall and emphasized that the patient safety is their top priority. The recall was based on an extremely small number of pill packs that were manufactured by an external contract manufacturer. Spokesperson Heather Zumas Lebeski said, Endo has been able to confirm only one blister pack that manifested a defect 
and was sold to a patient. Court documents said 30, uh, 3.2 million pill packs were recalled. So this is clearly a negligent a negligence case, but you know, kind of interesting in the sense that, all right, you're going to take birth control to prevent birth. I understand that. I get that. Whether you think it's wrong or right, I understand the premise and purpose of the pills. And so you purchase something and you didn't get what you were entitled to. But now the list of damages that stem from this negligence could include in certain states paying for college tuition. It's really, really amazing because now you're going to have people saying, well, I didn't want to have a baby, but I did it anyway. Um, and this is because of, of your, your negligence. And so now you've got to pay for not only my medical expenses if they're not covered, but my pain and suffering for going through the labor, carrying the baby. And now we've got a, a child here and you're going to have to pay for all these expenses. I wasn't prepared to do so. So it could be a, a ridiculously expensive lawsuit. And it's going to be interesting to find out you know, what, what happens. Now, it's going to come down, I think, to being able to prove for each of these women that they actually purchased the product, used it the proper way, or at least the proper way they believed, because remember, it was reversed in the packaging. Um, so they're going to have to prove that. It's still the plaintiff's burden of proof in a case like this, but clearly the company knows there's a mistake, so we'll see where this plays out, but um, certainly very, very interesting. All right, now moving on to Cheerios, another bit of, of false advertising, if you will. A lawsuit says that protein Cheerios misleads consumers. And this, according to the Washington Post, General Mills, the maker of Cinnamon Toast Crunch, Lucky Charms, my favorite, Fiber One and Cheerios, has a clever new trick, according to a lawsuit brought against the company last week by the Center for Science in the Public Interest, a consumer group. Uh, the suit alleges that the cereal maker has been selling a new product called Cheerios Protein, which the company first introduced last year under false pretenses. The overall impression of the box is that the cereal has a lot more protein than traditional Cheerios, but when you look at the nutrition label, it's clear that protein Cheerios has only a little bit more protein and a lot more sugar, says Michael Jacobson, president of the CSPI, and we think that that's very deceptive. A glance at nutritional information for the two cereals, which is available on General Mills' website, reveals that a single serving of Cheerios protein has 7 grams of protein and 17 grams of sugar, and a serving of the original Cheerios has 3 grams of protein and only a single gram of sugar. Now, right off the bat, before I continue, 3 and 7 is, I think, a big enough difference to be able to call this protein Cheerios. You're going from three grams of protein to seven. I don't I don't see that as being nominal because, you know, when you look at how many grams of protein the average person is supposed to have on a given day, I think it's somewhere in the area of 20 grams per meal or something like, like that. I don't remember the exact total, but uh, I think I recall something where the body can't really handle more than 20 or 25 grams at a time. I think that, to me, this makes sense. And then the sugar issue, well, they're not saying it's low-sugar cereal. They're saying that it's protein cereal. Let's continue. 
Uh, here's the thing. The added protein is actually even less significant, so they say, than a first look at the labels make it seem because the serving sizes aren't the same. So, for example, regular Cheerios, um, which corresponds to 28 grams of the cereal, but for Cheerios protein, however, the listed protein and sugar contents correspond to 55 grams. Now, that is a difference between 28 and 55 grams of a serving size. So after adjusting the difference, Cheerios protein packs only about a gram more protein by weight. The good news is that the more accurate comparison means there isn't quite as much extra sugar in it as it originally seemed. By weight, Cheerios protein has just over 8 instead of 17 times as much sugar as its simpler counterpart. So the issue here isn't the one variety of Cheerios has more sugar than the other or that a new flavor isn't as healthy as the original. Um, It really comes down to the cereal doesn't make good on the core promise of its name, which might be lost on customers who don't have the time or wherewithal to realize that that's the case when they're making the purchase. According to Jacobson, I think people wouldn't buy the cereal if they knew how little difference there was in protein. But that fact isn't obvious. General Mills, which dismissed the lawsuit as publicity-seeking, says it isn't misleading customers at all. To state facts, an equal amount of Cheerios protein contains 18% more protein by weight than original Cheerios, the company wrote in an email statement. Cheerios protein contains 7 grams of protein per serving and does qualify as a good source of high-quality protein under the FDA standard. Cheerios protein provides a good source of protein in every labeled serving, and it's accurately labeled. So we're going to see where this goes um, but it's it's easy to see the argument here on both sides. I think that in this day and age, unless you are living in a hole, you know how to look at a nutritional uh, panel on a product and gauge what sort of, of components make up this food. And in this case, I think that we're intelligent enough to be able to see sugar, protein, calories, um, even at a basic level. I mean, in most schools now, there are, are, are classes that specifically talk about nutrition and health, and they give you the basics, and they tell you how to interpret some of these uh, nutritional labels. So I'm not sure for me that looking at a box of protein Cheerios and saying, wow, there's a ton of protein in here, and, and not looking at the nutritional label is something I would do. I think that if I saw something that was advertised as being high in protein, I would want to look to see, well, how many grams of protein per serving? So we'll see where it goes. But it doesn't necessarily sound to me like General Mills is being deceptive in its advertising. I think that um, in this case, quite honestly, I think that this lawsuit is going to be one that the plaintiffs do not win. But again, we'll see. All right, in wrapping up today's news, this is the most ridiculous story of the day. PETA filed a lawsuit over a monkey selfie copyright, and it's just become even more bizarre. In September, the animal rights group PETA filed a lawsuit against photographer David Slater, who was arguing that the monkey, 
All right, this monkey took a series of viral selfies with Slater's camera in 2011, and PETA is saying that the monkey should be the rightful copyright owner of the pictures. Absolutely crazy, but to make matters worse, the legal battle has now evolved into a dispute over the monkey's identity and gender. Okay, this is, in my opinion, total waste, total waste of taxpayer dollars. The Washington Post reports that Slater's lawyers filed defense papers last week arguing that PETA can't prove the identity of the monkey in the selfies. PETA filed the lawsuit as next friends or on behalf of Naruto, a six-year-old monkey that lives in the jungles of Indonesia. It's it's crazy because the monkey can't file a lawsuit, so PETA has done it on the monkey's behalf. Now, basically, what the defense is saying is that according to copyright law, that it has to be a human creation, okay? The U.S. Copyright Office states that photos must be the product of human authorship, okay, not monkey authorship, in order to be copyrightable. So it seems unlikely that PETA is going to prevail on this. I think that this is more of a publicity stunt, but but really I think kind of stupid because there are a lot of people out there that swear by PETA, and then there are those who think that PETA is a little bit extreme and over the edge, over the top. Why would you file a lawsuit and sort of make yourself in the headlines when you can't win? I mean, really, that's just so stupid. I think a lot of the the PETA detractors are going to jump on board this. I mean, this is just an absolute waste of taxpayers' money and everyone's time. I mean, can you imagine alleging that a monkey who took a selfie owns the copyright? That's uh, absolutely insane. So that kind of stuff infuriates me because our court system is so heavily taxed and, and, and burdened by the amount of litigation that people file, and you're going to have PETA file something as ridiculous as this. They should be, uh, I think, you know, frivolous litigation notices should have gone out, and hopefully they, they'll be sanctioned because that's, to me, absolute nonsense. All right, that's going to do it for today. Again, you know, our hearts, prayers, minds, thoughts go out to the people of Paris who suffered in this weekend's terrorist attack. Uh, We've got a lot of stories that we're going to be following in the next few weeks, especially the DraftKings issue. We're going to check that out, and we'll probably talk about that next Monday. I want to remind you uh, of our schedule this week. So we've got a lot of things going on this week, a lot of good um, you know, Q&As that we're going to be dealing with. So tomorrow, which is the 17th, you believe it, the 17th already, episode 228, we're going to be talking about slip and fall liability as it relates to apartment complexes. And there's a reason, you'll, you'll, you'll learn that reason tomorrow, why we are uh, sort of separating out apartment complexes from general slip and fall liability. So if you are an apartment owner, a super a property owner, landowner, or you're a tenant, you're going to want to tune into that. That's going to be tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern time. Um, And then on Wednesday, the 18th, 
episode 229, we're going to be answering a business question about home improvement contractor's licenses. This one's critical if you are a home improvement contractor. By the way, did you know in certain states that landscapers are home improvement contractors? So if you are involved in any sort of home repair, you're going to want to listen to Wednesday's show, episode 229. Don't miss that because some of the fines for not being licensed, not being a licensed home improvement contractor, are in certain states $10,000 and up per day. I mean, that's crazy, right? So check that out. Um, Don't forget, by the way, to subscribe to the podcast. Uh, I know you guys are listening to this on multiple devices, Stitcher, maybe Blog Talk Radio, but you can find the subscription link uh, right on iTunes, and you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes directly, and then you're notified when new episodes are available, and that way you don't miss anything, and you can also go back and listen to prior episodes. You can also follow this program on Blog Talk Radio or Stitcher, but I would say that iTunes probably is the easiest because you can stream it right to your phone or to your uh, computer. So that's what I would recommend. Also, don't forget that there is a YouTube channel that corresponds with the podcast, but it's different from the podcast. So while certain shows might cross over, maybe the news will have a a video crossover, there's going to be different materials and information available on the YouTube channel. So make sure you subscribe to that as well. And then the place you want to go where you can get everything, the one that pulls it all together, is utlradio.com. And we are in the midst of undergoing a massive website renovation. We're going to be launching the new site by the end of the month and going to be very excited to present it to our UTL Radio friends and family and see what you guys think about the new site, its ease of use, the information available. And uh, so we're excited for that. So that's going to happen at the end of this month. And we'll be launching that site all set for the 1st of December. So don't forget to check out utlradio.com. Look at what's going on. Make sure you see um, the site now because in a couple weeks, you're going to have a brand new site. Uh, So check that out. Stay tuned. Also, I want to remind you that if you are in the need For IT support, you need a guideline, a roadmap, a partner to work with you, somebody to help you navigate the absolute complexities of IT, safety, networking, then check out Cognoscape, that's C-O-G-N-O-S-C-A-P-E, Cognoscape.com, or give them a call, the 214-377-4888. 84 and don't forget they have a lot of free materials available on their website at cognoscape.com including two ebooks and multiple white pages so check that out that's going to do it for today i want to thank you all for subscribing for following for your comments your subscriptions it really means a lot to me and i want you to keep those questions coming because i want to know what legal and business questions you want answered so that i can help you achieve your goals, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you are handling your own legal matter, we want to be here to give you the support that you need. And we want you to always lean on utlradio.com for help in your business and legal solutions. So I want to thank you. And uh, I also want to remind you to make sure that you share this information. 
that you know we talk about, that you learn with your friends, your family, and colleagues, and let them know about utlradio.com, your business success and legal information station. I'll see you next time. An ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Up to 70% off. That's right. At Court Furniture Clearance Center. Get up to 70% off new retail prices and choose from a wide variety of previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. Sofas from $199.99. Bedroom sets from $399.99. Dining sets from $299.99 and more. All items are court certified, guaranteed, and in stock, ready for delivery or to take home today. Make the smart choice and visit one of our five locations in the DMV or go on online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off.